You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. What's the oldest sport in America, Mr. Sports Fundy? <laughs> uh, Self-proclaimed boy. sports fundy. <laughs> First of all, what's a, a fundy or fundy? <laughs> <laughs> somebody that knows a lot about a specific topic it's usually when oh, they okay. say that about themselves they become a fundy a fundy okay <laughs> yeah that's a good question and i don't know you stumped me oh man come on try take a guess <laughs> like native to america i guess i would say oh I have no idea. Wow. Well, in the mid <laughs> mid 1700s till about the 1800s, the Iroquois version of lacrosse continued to be played among indigenous tribes throughout modern day Canada and the United States. Oh, wow. Yeah, and in 1805, a US Army officer, Lieutenant Pike, discovered a tribe of the Huchunk Sioux Indians playing the sport, what is now known as Central Wisconsin. So there you go. Wow. <laughs> you learn something new every day. I really thought you would have gotten that one because you, you know so much about, well, you say you know so much about sports. <laughs> not that much, apparently. Yeah, definitely not lacrosse, right? How are you guys doing? Today's the first day that we had to run the air conditioning, which is always a sad day in my eyes. Because <laughs> then all the windows got to close and you can't hear the yeah. birds. But it, but it's uh, yeah. it's 83 years today in SoCal, so it's, it's getting warmer. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I mean, the kids are in the pool right now. They finished all of their Zoom classroom calls for school. Nice. And that's one of the nice things about them being home is they can kind of do their calls in the morning, swim, and then do the rest of their schoolwork in the early evening and kind of structure their day in a way to take advantage of the nice weather. It's like the new normal, right? Well, wait till the killer (laughs) hornets arrive at your house. Oh man, those are freaky. Just to make May a little bit more interesting. That was a strange headline this week. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Well, the other good thing is I read over the weekend that apparently, and this keeps on changing, you can't get the virus twice now, which is good because I tested positive for the antibodies. So let's hope that's true for a lot of people that came through it and survived it. So yeah. Yeah, it's a good bit of, of good news. Yeah, till next week, till it changes. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to start reading some of your amazing reviews. And thank you so much for posting them. They really, really help with specifically the Apple rankings. So if you enjoy the show, please leave a review. So why don't you take it away, Chad? Yeah, awesome. So we're going to read two reviews. The first was by Lisa Shimo138. And she said, what's great about this series is that Nico and Chad always bring the story back to what can we learn? So each episode is not just about failure. It's about making each example relevant today. Another thing I like is that they mention humility as being important for brands, especially the big guys. Nico and Chad have recognized that this helps create emotional connection for consumers. Nice. So thanks, Lisa Shimo138. That was amazing. Great stuff. Thank you. And another review from Mandy Ellefson. She says, the theme of this podcast is really unique. It critiques well-known brands' success or failure. I liked the Bloomberg campaign episode about buying your way to the top. And essentially, you can't buy your way to the top with a bad product. Yeah, great. So again, thanks for the review, Mandy. That was awesome. Cool. So let's dive in. Assuming it's about sports today, right? This is sport man. <laughs> it is about <laughs> sports. <laughs> One of my favorite topics. I thought this was about marketing. What's going on here? Yeah, we always seem to veer off course a little bit, but 
we'll pull it back in like usual. Yep. So, Nico, you've lived here a long time now, like at least 10 years, probably closer to what, 14 years? Yeah, close to 15. Yep. 15 years. Okay. So, baseball is super ingrained in American culture. A few episodes ago, we did an episode about the Pledge of Allegiance and how influential that was to American culture. And this is kind of like another key pillar of American culture is sports and specifically baseball. It's called the American pastime. So we were having a chat the other day and I just thought it was kind of weird that you haven't at least heard of some of the superstars in baseball. Yeah. Even though you may not super care for the sport, but to at least have heard about them. Yeah, well, it's odd, right? I've never seen anything about baseball on social media. And I think that's how you learn something about a sport, even if you're not a diehard spectator like yourself. So I remember us sitting at San Juan Capistrano, which is an area very close to us, brainstorming this show months ago and just kicking around some ideas of brands that fail and brands that come back. And that was kind of like the birth of our show. And you mentioned baseball. You mentioned that baseball has been on a decline. <laughs> yeah. And you outlined why that was. And I, I was completely stumped. I couldn't believe that a brand could do what they are doing. And I, I suppose that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in today's show. But as somebody that's new in the country, I know nothing about it because I'm not exposed to any of the media from baseball on social media or anywhere for that matter. It never touches me. So I don't know anything about the sport. I don't know anything about the sponsorship. I don't know anything about the players. In contrast, I know a lot about the NBA and I love their sponsorship and their stars. Not that I know a lot about it, just because I'm exposed through the brand, through social media. Sure. Yeah. And it is kind of a shocking story when you hear how little information actually is out there and how little content actually is out there around baseball. This kind of decline in the sport is very, very real. Baseball was the top sport in America from the beginning until it started to decline around the 60s when about 40% of Americans said it was their favorite sport at that time. So was that when it was coined the American pastime in the 60s, basically? Or was it before that? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when that phrase kind of like got coined, but it was definitely in that period of kind of the first half of, of the century. And since then... It's now at 9% of Americans say that baseball is their favorite sport. Wow. It's just been a massive decline. And we can see that when we look at some of the numbers, for example, with TV viewership. So this is looking at TV viewership from 1973 to 2019. And during that period, the highest viewership was in 1978 with 44 million views compared to just under 14 million wow. in 2019. And I know that broadcasting has been on the decline, but not that much though, not from, from a sporting perspective, right? So you still have NBA and the NFL, which is still holding pretty on par with where they were decades ago. Yeah, exactly. And you even have some sports that are on the rise. So when we look at it in terms of not just TV viewership, but also attendance. So in 2019... The attendance was 68.5 million fans for Major League Baseball. That's going to games. And that is down 14% from 2019. 
from 75 million in 2007, and it's been down six of the last seven seasons. Oh, well, yeah, the average age of a baseball fan has gone up or down, whichever way you want to look at it, according to MarketWatch. <laughs> in 2006, it was 52, and in 2017, it was 56. You can't have an aging customer base not do anything about it to bring in the next wave of fans into the sport. Yeah. And today, there's no real youth movement. Only 7% of the MLB's fan base is under 18, again, according to MarketWatch. And if you just think about it, that's really crazy. And it's a, it's a very telling statistic as the health of the sport, per se. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because the indicator of health is how can you replace your fans as they age out? And how can you continue to grow the sport with additional components of your fan base? But kind of the weird thing as we were researching this episode that we saw was even with all of this decline, revenues are actually still up year over year. So for Major League Baseball, revenue went from $1.5 billion in 1997 to $7.5 billion in 2012. Yeah. And it's continuing to increase. So it's definitely one of the big three professional sports in the U.S. still. But when you look at just the overall health, it's a little bit counterintuitive because yeah. while the market is getting smaller, the revenues are still going up. And I think that's part of the reason why we are talking what we're talking about today. And we'll get into the details a little bit more, but there's maybe not a strong incentive yeah. for the lack of the better analogy, the CEO of this company to do anything about it because they're still meeting their plan. And they're still making revenue. <laughs> but, you know, even as an outsider right. that don't know or I'm not really a baseball fan, I can really see how this sport compares to other sports in the U.S. There is no doubt that baseball is lagging behind in terms from a growth and opportunity standpoint against some of the other national sports, you know, the NBA sports and so on. Especially when you think of the coverage that they get on social media and making it more accessible to the pop culture of this youth culture than even more before, right? It's just it's non-existent for, for baseball right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so crazy to me. Makes no sense. I'm, I'm a baseball fan. Yeah, my favorite team is the Dodgers. Yeah, it's worked that in there, right? Had, Dodgers. Yeah, yeah. I've got to, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite team is the Dodgers. And as a fan, I want to consume a lot more content. Like I've personally experienced the frustration with not being able to find content about them and not being able to watch highlights or interact with the players on social media in any way. It's just so strange that for such an amazing game, a game that I love and grew up with, that has so much history, so much potential, that it's in the state that it's in. So let's kind of unpack the state that it's in and the background of how it got there, because there's some really, really, really interesting brand stories that kind of fall out of that. Yeah. So let's actually start, even though baseball is much older than this, let's actually start in 1981. And that season is a big one for me because my team, the Dodgers, won the World Series in 1981. Okay, stop, 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 stop. Why do you call it the World Series? This is ridiculous. <laughs> this is a, a bunch of American states playing against one another, and then they win the World Series. Are there any... Buddy from Japan or Canadian teams or <laughs> there, <laughs> any other national besides the USA in, in this? There, there is a Canadian team. There Do they is. play in the World Series? They can, 
But you know, but they didn't qualify. I'm sure. <laughs> it's been a while. The reason why I say that is that's been such an odd thing for me about baseball. You know, I grew up in South Africa and. We played in a lot of international sports. So the Rugby World Cup or the Cricket World Cup or the Football World Cup or the Soccer World Cup. And that was like a massive deal where the whole country would go to a different country and they would like the last season, the South African Springboks won the Rugby World Cup against all the different nations in the whole world. <laughs> yeah. And here you win the Dodgers yes. won the World Series. That's just odd. <laughs> well, you know, as Americans, we always just claim for ourselves the title of being the best in the world, whether or not we have to prove it. And but. I remember I remember saying that to you way back when, <laughs> and you stopped and thought about it. You said, yeah, you're right. It's just, it's just odd. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make sense, but I'll, I'll run with it. Yeah, especially if the Dodgers <laughs> so, win the World Series. Hey, if that happens, then I'm all good. But so one of the other reasons that that season in 1981 is very memorable is because of the player strikes that happened during that season. So in the 1981 season, there were 713 games that were canceled, which is about 38% of the entire season. And the season is really long, right? Just tell our non-baseball fans how long the season is for a year. Yeah. So to put that in context, it's 162 games per season. It lasts literally half of the year. The season is is very long and grinding. And what happened was the owners had kind of lost this fight about free agency for players, and they wanted some concessions and basically said, you know, we have the leverage and you're not going to play again until we get what we want, essentially. So... Let me understand. Did they just then piss off the fans so that the owners could get more value <laughs> out of their ongoing free agents? I mean, it seems relatively a very small concession. I don't understand. It, it doesn't seem worth losing, what do you say, 713 games worth of revenue over, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it made fans very upset. It really kind of changed the way fans thought about baseball because they always thought of it as, again, the American pastime, something that's just this kind of like family bonding opportunity that you pass down from generation to generation and baseball fans in general we think of baseball as this really pure thing because of how we experienced it growing up as a child we want to keep the game pure don't want it defiled or degraded in any way and so it didn't really end there it really just changed the perception of how fans kind of saw the league and saw the sport as for the first time is this really capitalistic type of enterprise versus this pure game of love and enjoyment that they have. And so the owners actually never really got what they wanted. Mm. And it all kind of boils over later in the larger strike of the 94-95 season that lasted 232 days wow. and even canceled the playoffs in the World Series. The World Series. Yes, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a story in the USA Today that we found about Bob Nightingale that was interviewing Dave Stewart, a four-time 20-game winner, and then pitched for the Toronto Blue Jays. He said, I never felt the same way about baseball ever again. Even today, after all these years in baseball, the passion I have for the game has never been the same again all because of that strike. And then he went on to say, it was one of the most embarrassing moments that ever happened in Major League Baseball. I wish I had never come back. I mean, that's... Wow. That's pretty... 
<laughs> That's a big statement. Pretty bad, yeah. So in all, this whole strike was rooted from the owners noticing a slow decline in finances and they wanted to create a salary cap for players, right? Is that the way that I understand it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were experiencing a need to tighten the belt a little bit. And so they thought one of the best ways to do that is, hey, let's just cap player salaries. It's one of the biggest expenditures. And of course, players just saw that as what's in it for us. What's the benefit for us of capping our salaries? That's not really fair. We should get paid what we're worth. And so the strike happens and that cancels the World Series for the first time in 90 years. It costs players millions and it costs management about $1 billion. Oh. Yeah. Games didn't resume until the following season and then only after a court injunction was issued that restored the rules of the expired labor contract. Wow. Yeah. And Commissioner Bud Selig acknowledged that, quote, there was a lot of anger, particularly from the fans. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, so the attendance was down 20% the following season. The operating revenue went from $1.87 billion in 93 to $1.2 billion in 94, and it only really got back to the former level in 1997. And a lot of fans obviously started turning to the NBA and to NASCAR, and here's a really cool quote that broke my heart in 1994. The strike shortened season showed that they didn't care about the individual consumer. I was a truck driver. I was invested in the season because I drove through individual markets and was up to date. They just stopped the season. I will never forgive them. Mm. It's nasty, right? (laughs) It strikes right to the heart, man. Uh, It really does. And in discussing this episode, we've been trying to bring this back to like a company analogy, meaning that the owners are the CEO and the players are the employees. And the reason why I'm saying that is because this is a money-making machine. This is a brand, right? It's just not being run like a brand. And what's interesting to me as well is that the commissioners are usually ex-lawyers because they negotiate through a lot of these strikes and and fallouts. And then they become the commissioner. It's very interesting. Exactly. And they're kind of loyalties generally lie with the owners rather than the players because the owners are the ones that vote them in. They're the ones that quote unquote sign the paycheck for lack of a better term. And so that creates this really kind of negative dynamic in some leagues much more than others and especially with the MLB because of their history and all of the things that they've gone through. It's a really bad dynamic between the commissioner and the players. But wait, there is more. (laughs) It gets worse. (laughs) So next comes the steroid scandal. So baseball was slumping, you know, after the strike, but did see a bit of a revival in the mid 90s when the big hitters, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, these guys that as a, a young guy, I kind of like idolized, you know, they're just crushing these home run records and they're widely accused of PEDs and most of them were caught in some form or another. That sport about purity, right? We just didn't you just talk about purity? <laughs> the, the, Two the minutes quote ago, about purity, yeah. Purity and PD. <laughs> <laughs> you don't often hear that in the same sentence. Things just unravel. So they were widely accused, right? And the league had kind of turned a blind eye for a number of years because they needed baseball to pick back up. And these heavy hitters were bringing the fans back into the stands and bringing the money back into the wallets. And they liked the attention the sport was getting. So between 1961 and 94, only three players had hit more than 50 home runs 
in a season. And in 96, Ken Griffey Jr. and Mark McGuire, they both threatened Roger Maris's all-time record of 61 home runs in a season, which was set in 1961. And Ken Griffey finished with 56, McGuire with 58. Mm. The increase just keeps on coming from the PEDs in 97. 13 different players hit more than 40 homers. Wow. Yeah, not common at the time. McGuire and Sammy Sosa battled to break the all-time record. Ultimately, both of them did in the same season. Sosa finishes the season with 66 homers, 26 more than his previous best. Wow. And Mark McGuire hits 70 dingers. So McGuire admits to using Andro, which was already banned in the NFL and the NBA, but Major League Baseball wasn't even testing for it yet. And in 2001, Barry Bonds hit 73, despite never hitting more than 50 in any previous season. Yeah. And then everything just came crashing down at this point. <laughs> yeah. In 2003, federal agents started investigating nutritional supplement companies in California that were, were suspected for supplying these athletes yeah. and multiple other sports as well with PEDs. Ultimately, the MLB players, including Barry Bonds, Jason Gamby, Gary Sheffield, and others were all subpoenaed. Multiple players admitted to, like, to your point of, of taking PEDs, but because the substances weren't specifically prohibited by the MLB, the league didn't take any action against any of the players. <laughs> so this is like uh, your employee that does something bad and you just don't do anything about it, right? Getting back to the company analogy. Yeah. The case forged MLB to take stronger stance on PDs, and they had to rewrite a lot of their rules. But the league's inaction and, more importantly, the betrayal to the fans and some of the biggest sports stars were, were cheating. You were just talking about right. all these people that had 26 more home runs that they had before. Yeah. And everybody realized this was just purely because of the PDs that they were taking. So... This further poisoned the public sentiment against the sport. Now, here's a question for you. We have now talked about how there were PDs. You can't find the sport on social media. Yep. There were a strike. Why are you still a fan? Yeah, exactly. And I think most of the fans that are still around are there because we, we love the game. And that's where the purity comment comes from is, yeah. is we love the game. And so it's kind of one of those things where, you know, it has all these flaws and imperfections, but... You try to see past those because it's something that you love and enjoy. And But a lot of the fans through this whole thing, they blame the owners, they blame mm. the league. And we actually see it again with what's happened over the past couple of years with actually the Dodgers and the Astros and the Boston Red Sox, where there's been another really big cheating scandal over the last couple of years. And the way the league responded to it just absolutely alienated all the fans and severely like upset them all. Yeah. So they did it again. Yeah, and this is where things started changing from a media availability perspective. So during yeah. this time, the MLB and the players both broke the public's trust, right? This clearly happened. Yep. But at the same time, nothing was being published on social media and the MLB were basically just silent. They had a, one or two press releases about it and that was it. And it's maybe because all of the past scandals, they became very, very controlling over the narrative and the public information about the sport. And I think this is where, from a marketing standpoint, where it starts getting really interesting. <laughs> yes. They started limiting players' media access and limiting their content of how they can use the MLB's content and what they can do with it. And there's no other sport that I know of in the US that does that. 
Yeah, I really can't think of any other sport that handles things the same way. The basics of their social media policy essentially after this become that all highlights have to be centrally distributed from MLB.com. Crazy. That players are not allowed to share highlights and other content on social media because they want to control the narrative from players. The MLB aggressively starts going after fans for posting MLB content outside of their policies. And, and these are fans. Fans. This is Chad that's reposting right. a home run and you get a letter from the MLB for a copyright infringement. Right. Yeah. That is ridiculous. For sharing a YouTube video, right? It's crazy. Like our five-year-old says, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense. <laughs> Yes. Yes, he has it right. So the media outlets can only share highlights from the first inning of the game. So there's nine innings, right? They can only share highlights from the first inning. Teams can only post two highlights a game to their accounts. And the rest of the highlights have to be posted as a link to the MLB.com website. And getting back to the company analogy that the fans are the consumers, right? The fans are the people consuming this brand. Absolutely. And their demographic is aging and the younger demographic is on social media. This is exactly where they are (laughs) and they restrict the content back to them. Right. And they take it even further. Broadcasting partners are only allowed to post highlights according to these rules. But on top of that, you can only have a 60-second post-game highlight that you post, nothing containing gameplay in between, and you have these massive blackouts in a lot of the local media markets, almost entirely choking off access in a number of markets, both large, small, and basically just muzzling players from being able to build a personal platform or for the teams to be able to cultivate and grow their fan bases via TV. It's just stifling and choking off all access to the sport. Yeah, I must probably asked you a hundred times why. I, I still don't, <laughs> I still can't figure it out because I know I know a lot of brands try to control their message, but we were kicking around a name for this episode and it was like choking the thing you love. It doesn't make any sense. So in 2019, they updated their social media policy, allowing players to request... <laughs> request. Yeah, to request individual basis clips from a centralized database that they can then get approval to share on their social media pages. Rob Manfred, the MLB commissioner said, quote, we have a number of players who has indicated their interest in participating in this project. So the (laughs) fact that he's calling this a project, social media, a project just shows you how detached he is from the reality of how people consume his content. He's games content. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Consume everything around the sport. It makes me think of the players weekend that the MLB started in 2017, where what they do is for one weekend out of the entire 162 game season, the players can wear whatever colors or accessories they want or put nicknames on the back of their jerseys. They can wear the cleats that they want to wear for one game. (laughs) It's so contrived and terrible. It's like largely this, this meaningless gesture toward trying to fix like these arbitrary cultural rules that limit personal expression, authenticity, you know, any way to just be yourself or actually kind of be invested in in the culture of the company in your own way kind of gets cut. Yeah, well, 
maybe the why will become more apparent as you unpack this further. I know a lot of things are wrong here, and I still don't have any answers of, as to why. <laughs> so let's listen to a really interesting clip here of Trevor Bauer. He's a all-star pitcher of Cincinnati Reds, which is, by the way, the first and only game that I went to because I lived in Cincinnati for five years, and we actually watched the Cincinnati Reds. So let, let's listen to this clip quickly. God, I just had to get this off my chest. And I want to focus on some solutions, some things we can do in media. Like, Rob, if you understood media, maybe as the commissioner of baseball, you could solve some of these things. Like how in one of your biggest markets, half the fans can't even watch the damn game because of TV deals. Like, I grew up, what got me into baseball is I grew up going to see it one Dodger game a year. I'd go to one a year. We didn't have money to go to more than that. I'd sit out in the bleachers. We'd listen to Vince Scully on the radio with my dad. But we watched Dodger games all the time. I was sitting in bed at night watching Dodger games. This is what got me into baseball. Half the people in local markets have blackouts. They buy the MLB package to watch their favorite team, and they can't even watch their favorite team half the time. I know that's not all on Rob, but as the commissioner, figure it out, man. Like, how are we supposed to spread the game? How are we supposed to get people interested, young people, the missing generation of baseball fans? How are we supposed to get them interested in the game when they can't even see the damn game? And on top of that, they can't even go to Twitter where all the young people hang out. You can't even go to social media and see anything about the game. Steph Curry throws a bounce pass in an NBA game and it, it's trending with 1.5 million views five minutes later and Mike Trout goes and launches himself and robs a homer or something and you can't find the highlight anywhere online. It's ridiculous. You got BAM, that baseball advanced media that was designed to just centralize all MLB content and force people to pay to have access to it. Great, you made a lot of money up front, but you centralize all this content and you make people pay for it. And you know what you get? You get a missing generation of fans. You make some money up front, great, and you miss a generation of fans and the, the game is losing popularity and especially amongst young people. And that's just dealing with content that we already have available. Like, where's the innovation in content? Like, where, where's the next thing that's, that's going to draw fans in? Like, who, who's innovating? Who's creating something new? Who's trying to identify with the young fans? God, it's frustrating, man. Okay, yeah, wow. Um, oh, man. Let's like Yeah, and we'll post that clip in the show notes. He's like, he's red. He's fuming he's like spinning he's he's not happy and we didn't we didn't play the last five <laughs> seconds of the clip but he literally stands up and rips the microphone off him and walks away and i asked you that he's a very famous player right this is a yeah i mean he's a controversial player but but he is he's well known he's an all-star he's been a starter for a number of years yeah he's not just some random rookie you know that's talking about this so without the magic of these big sport names it's easier for young kids to grab hold of like a lebron james or something that's totally inaccessible baseball stars he mentions steph curry in there and steph curry is on a massive platform the nba in general again from an outsider's perspective here Right. has done such a good job with elevating their marketing game, their players, their merchandise, TV, demographic expansion. The contrast is really stunning. I just have to say, I just don't think the commissioner or anybody from an organizational standpoint have any idea what earned media is here, which is what's so important in sports. Yeah, it really is just kind of like shocking how bad it is. And that kind of like brings me to 
A question for you, Nico, you just mentioned as an outsider to American sports. I'm curious, what's the very first thing that pops into your mind when I say the word Jordans? Nike. Yeah. Yeah. I just think of, I think of the shoe brand, just do it. I can literally like visualize the shoe in my, in my mind. Yeah. And remember, you know us, we don't watch television. So that's not from ads. <laughs> no, seriously, that is from social right. media consumption, right? That is from browsing the internet. That is not from watching TV commercials because we don't watch television. Yeah. The, the NBA isn't the first thing. It's not even the second thing that you mentioned. And you didn't even say Michael Jordan's a player. Yeah. So because of the the access and the ability to relate to a player and to be able to consume content about that player and from that player and to be able to wear the same things that player wears, buy the same things they buy, yeah. do what you see in the commercials, it just completely changes the way you relate to the brand. Exactly. But that's not even the point because both NBA and the players really understand of how to use social media platforms to tap into something much bigger in marketing pop culture, right? And it's the right. desire to be like you, your point for younger kids that idolizes what they wear, what they say, the music they play, and they soak up the culture. Yeah. It doesn't exist in baseball. Yeah, it's just completely missing. So Trevor Braun, again, <laughs> would agree with that. So let's take another listen to what he has to say about it. I mean, let's not even talk about like the shoes, the cleats. Oh, hey, Mike Clevenger, you can't wear those shoes that are colorful that everybody on Twitter likes because it violates our stupid cleat policy where you get three colors of cleats. Like, I mean, what does it even matter? Just let the players express themselves. Let it have some personality. You want to market the game? Don't change it. Don't make the mound 62 feet. Don't make playoffs where you have to pick your opponent and freaking whatever. Don't change the game. Market the players. You have more players in baseball than any other league with much more diverse backgrounds worldwide. More so than any of the other major American sports. And it's the least marketable. Because you make stupid decisions about how you market the players. You don't open it up. Let content go. Get it out there. Quit with this stupid cleat policy, the stupid uh, BAM policy, blackouts all over the place. Like <laughs> It reminds me of my association where your house is only allowed to be, you know, one of three colors when you need you know, you need, you need <laughs> the permission. homeowners association, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You need permission to repaint it and Man, just the commissioner and the brand here, they just have no idea. They're just driving this into the ground. It's its stunning. Yeah, and I think especially when you put it into contrast of the people who are doing it right. So yeah. the NBA has handled things completely differently. And it's not like the NBA hasn't had scandals. Of course, they've had plenty of scandals. They've had situations where players have gone into the stands and thrown punches at fans. They've had owners that said crazy racist things and ended up getting banned for life and losing their team. NBA has had their own share of problems, but they've handled things so differently. And one of the things that I think has driven that is that they have a stated goal. It's written out. It's a stated goal to become the most popular sport on the planet. So they have this clear goal for what they want to accomplish, and they're aligning their actions to accomplish that goal. Well, getting back to the company analogy, that's a strategic vision of any company that you have. And all the decisions you make is based on that strategic vision that you define as a leadership team. I don't know if baseball has such a thing, 
And if they do, it's not in line with what their consumers want, what their customer want in this circumstance, right. what their fans want. It doesn't colorate directly. There's no comparison. It doesn't complement one another. Yeah. And because it really seems that the NBA is playing the long game instead of what MLB is doing, which is kind of like being greedy in the short term and trying to control the narrative so that yeah. they can also control the cash. Remember the Theranos episode where we talked about how the employees started turning up against Elizabeth. That's what we just heard. We heard an employee yeah. that's really annoyed with his employer because the brand that they're producing doesn't have his stamp of approval on it. Right. So for the NBA, Commissioner Adam Silver, he's actually worked with Twitter and YouTube directly with them to encourage fans to post clips, to make sure the league actually receives a portion of the ad revenue on the back end from the platforms on those videos that contain highlights. So they're just taking a much smarter approach. And he actually told strategybusiness.com, quote, we analogize our strategy to snacks versus meals. If we provide those snacks to our fans on a free basis, they're still going to want to eat meals, which are our games. There is no substitute for the live game experience. We believe that greater fan engagement through social media helps drive television ratings. Yeah, and also, as we know, a lot of people are consuming these snacks on social media. So let's compare the three major leagues, NBA, NFL, and MLB. On Insta, the NBA is close to 50 million fans, the NFL close to 20, and the MLB 6 million. Because there's no real content on there. <laughs> Facebook, the NBA, is close to 40 million, the NFL 17, and the MLB only has 7.3. And on TikTok, which is a newer medium, NBA has got 10 million or close to 11 million, NFL close to 4 million, and the MLB only 1.4 million. This is where the next generation of your brand advocates live and consume yeah. your treats, like you just put it. So they just don't have access to it. Yes, it's crazy. So they clearly don't understand the concepts of both attention grabbing and holding and maintaining the attention of their customers and the concept of earned media that if you can get your customers to become part of your brand and to evangelize your brand for you yeah. by sharing it and experiencing it with you publicly and through word of mouth telling everybody about the amazing experience that they're having, you're really missing the boat. Yeah, it's really clear that they're just not running this like a brand that thinks their customers are the most important stakeholders. They are pondering to the owners who make the most money by having the league run all the deals instead of decentralizing it to the players that makes all their own deals and then amplifying that content across social. It's just, they just don't think like that, yep. which is again, just asking again, I still don't understand why. <laughs> like, and I know that like we started the episode by saying their revenue is still up. So the only thing I can think of, they just don't have an incentive to fix this because their revenue is up. Yeah, exactly. From a financial perspective and as it relates to being able to control the situation, they're in a good spot. In a 2009 article for Forbes, Murray Brown wrote, quote, ask any CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation and they'll tell you that the success is built on getting their product exposed to as many consumers as possible. Major League Baseball has missed this memo. The league's arcane and overly restrictive blockout policy throttles the league's product back, a counterintuitive and overly obstructive policy that minimizes their product reach. So like, what's the deal here? 
right? Like You just cannot run a company like this. I have a lot of questions about this because what's really the deal here? What's really driving this is that they are afraid of giving players and fans control because of all of the past uprisings that they've had to squash. And so in the process, they stifle their fan base out of existence. I think it's greed. And I think you're right. I think ticket prices are going up. Revenue's going up. The owners are making a killing. They can more easily squash the rebellion. And so it might just be intoxicating greed. Well, Gary Vaynerchuk, which is a very outspoken social media individual, he's also the owner of Vayner Sports, blames the league. He says, quote, Major League Baseball a decade ago decided to focus on short-term economics to the detriment of being everywhere where people are building up their stars. You can't find baseball content on the internet unless the league is getting a piece of what it is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. And then just to finish the quote, sorry, I got distracted there from the ridiculousness. <laughs> to finish his quote, he said that Steph Curry was built on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most agents see it that way. Scott Boris, who's one of the biggest agents in professional sports, said in an article for athleticbusiness.com that baseball is the polar opposite of the other leagues. Instead of promoting players and advancing players' rights and values in the sponsorship market, MLB wants to work to take away the incentive of the player to participate in these rather time-consuming events. They want to keep the revenue. You have this iconic brand that has cultivated a genuine like mystique and loyalty in its fan base for well over a century and now you have an ownership and league that seems to just care more about revenue than protecting and building the brand. Well, I wonder if you are like one of the last generation that's going to be so loyal to the sport. And if, if your kids or my little boy would ever even be interested in the sport because they don't have any of these stars that they idolize like you do within some of the other leagues. When Trevor Bauer talks about the missing generation, it's not going to be just one missing generation. If you miss a generation, then you also miss the generations that come after that missing generation. Yeah. So you have a really big problem unless you make some drastic changes in order to take care of that. Yeah, but also in researching this and, and listening to the commissioner and listening to the owners and looking at the track record, it doesn't seem that they're in a very massive hurry to make any changes here. Right. So the question is really how long can a brand continue to increase in revenues when support for the brand is decreasing? And where does that tipping point happen yeah. with the aging fan base where they really start to realize, oh, wow, it's not just declining TV viewership and it's not just hardly anybody in the stands anymore. I mean, there are some teams that they'll have literally a few hundred fans attending a major league baseball game. So where is that tipping point? I think it comes down to this. And this is not the most insightful insight that it relates to marketing. <laughs> but I really think it does, that baseball doesn't have to be popular to make money. Yeah. If popularity is decreasing, but revenue is increasing, literally who cares? And that is kind of an insight that you can draw back, not so much to marketing, but to business. If your organization is doing well, you need to innovate. You need to listen to your employees, you need to listen to your customers, and you need to constantly innovate. And I think the greed factor here and the lack of innovation is what is going to be the end of this brand as we know today. Right. Yeah, it's easy to fall asleep at the wheel, and, and that's kind of like what's happening. Baseball is 
such an amazing story because there's so much old sports, right? Yeah, there's so much richness and history. PEDs. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and they've gone through all these <laughs> failures and these rescues and failures and rescues over and over again. But how many times can you come back from a failure if you don't learn the lessons? We always talk about fail forward, but the core premise of fail forward is that you learn with each failure and you apply the lessons of those failures to your future endeavors. And that's how you get better. But if you don't apply those learnings, then all you're doing is just continually failing. And that's not good. And so the lesson for brands is this, if you don't understand who your real stakeholders are and empower them to evangelize your brand to their heart's content, you might just end up like Major League Baseball. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. We'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content. <laughs>